Indeed, God deserves all the glory. I invite you to open your Bible to Psalm 48 this morning. This fall, eight people died and scores of others were hospitalized by eating cantaloupe. Of course, cantaloupe tainted by salmonella, but who knows where salmonella might show up next. On another front, the FBI director testified before the House Committee on Homeland Security just a few weeks ago that terrorists crossing our southern border make every state a border state. We're all vulnerable. Also, health officials are warning of a possible triple-demic this winter, combining COVID-19, the flu, and another respiratory virus called RSV. We haven't even considered the peril of natural disasters. This same storm bringing us rain today brought devastating tornadoes to central Tennessee last night. And then what about the murders and mass shootings? Another one of those happened this past week. And then we have just the regular uh, danger of traffic accidents. This isn't sounding like a Christmas message, is it? But we have to know that uh, these kinds of, of, of dangers don't take time off for Christmas. In some cases, they even seem to get worse. The reality that all of these together communicate to us is that people are continually under threat by dangers that are lurking all around us. We certainly seem to have a lot to worry about, or do we? According to Psalm 48, if you are a citizen of God's kingdom, communicated in this psalm in terms of the city of Jerusalem, If you're a citizen of God's kingdom, you're safe no matter what dangers might be around the corner. This psalm tells us in clear terms that God protects his people like a great fortress. If you are in that fortress, you're safe, you're secure. But you also must worship God with joy. There's joy that comes from knowing that we're safe. And it's the reality of that, of our circumstance. We're safe, even in this world, that should prompt our joyful worship. Not just this morning. This is not just about during Christmas. This is all the time. We might be excused by thinking as as we read through Psalm 48 that this is primarily about the city of Jerusalem 
And it is a delight to do just what this psalm admonishes, to take a walk around the city. It's, it's a pretty good walk. I've only done that a couple of times. But that's not the point. The point of this psalm is not the city that God oversees. It's about the God who oversees it. The focus is right there, and it starts at the very first words. Great is the Lord. We're not going to see anywhere in this psalm where it says, great is the city. Great is the Lord. Any greatness the city has is only because God is there. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. What we're after and what God deserves is a match between his greatness that he portrays in a particular way in this psalm, a match between how great he is and how great is the praise that we offer to him. How intense is that and how earnest, how consistent is that worship. It's a call for us to analyze our own participation in a worship service like this. Like, how have you been doing so far this morning? Has your focus stayed on the Lord? Has the worship that you have uttered, has it come from your heart? Has it been with joy? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And now the psalm will go on to describe just one particular facet, emphasize one thing out of dozens and dozens and hundreds of features and attributes and activities of God. But just one is enough for us to conclude that our God is great and he deserves great praise. As he says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. Now, it's not restricted to those who actually resided in the city, even in the days of the psalmist. Not very many of God's people at any one time have ever lived in the city of Jerusalem. It's fairly small. Uh, even today, the old city is substantially larger than it was back in the days of the psalmist. It's more in line, closer to what it was in the days of Christ, but it's still pretty small by city standards today. But see, even in the, in the days when the psalmist wrote these words, what he said was not restricted to those that had the privilege of actually residing there. All God's people enjoy the benefits that he communicates here by means of this metaphor of the city of Jerusalem. It's the city of our God, special to God in very special ways, and it is where he sits as king. Not physically, of course, but really, he is king, and that is his holy mountain, holy because of him, not because of the city. He says it's beautiful in elevation. 
It is the joy of all the earth. And already we're beginning to wonder, are we uh, having some uh, exaggeration here? The joy of all the earth. Well, the reality is, of course, Jerusalem is the center of attention for the three world great religions. They are all vying for, uh, for control there, to have a role. But this even goes beyond that. The next statement tells us, yeah, we're not actually just talking about the physical city of Jerusalem. As he continues, Mount Zion in the far north. Well, is Jerusalem in the far north of anything? It's not even in the north of Israel, let alone the north of uh, the globe. There's something else going on here. He is already letting us know that this goes way beyond the location. This is all about the God who designates that as his city and, and, its, uh, and its citizens as part of his kingdom. The far north uh, is uh, an actually a, a very common uh, designation. We see it elsewhere in scripture. Uh, Lucifer, the, the morning star, according to, uh, according to uh, Isaiah, uh, he had the goal that he said, I will ascend to heaven. This is Isaiah 14. I will sit on the mount of the assembly, hear this, in the far reaches of the north. He's equating here heaven with the far north. I will make myself like the most high. The ambition of replacing God and using that designation far north. We see it also in ancient Near Eastern literature uh, of uh, the descriptions of like the Canaanite worship of Baal. Baal was said to have his residence in the far north. In fact, some even translate that as the word zaphron, the, the Hebrew word for north that shows up there. This is saying that this is the dwelling place of God. That's what makes it special. That is where he sits as king, the true king, far above any uh, pretenders like Baal or Lucifer or anyone else. Here's the true God, the one who is really in control. This city is where God shows how great he is. And its citizens are those who should praise him. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. You see, there's a sense in which that's us. If you have trusted Christ as your savior, you're a, city, a citizen of that city. And you benefit from God's greatness. And you are under daily obligation to give him great praise. He sits as king. 
And now the focus narrows to that one aspect of God that the psalmist wants to highlight in this psalm. In verse three, the same place where he sits as king, God stands as guard. Verse three says, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Fortress for whom? Fortress for his people. This same great God guards his people. He's present with them there, always keeping them secure. This is a protective fortress, an impenetrable fortress. And it's for all of his people, wherever they live, for all his people whenever they live. This is as true in 2023 as it was hundreds of years ago when the psalmist wrote these words. All God's people have this protective guardian watching over them. And together with him as king and as our guard, the Lord is reigning in majesty. He is great in his protection of his people. And that's why he deserves great praise. Verses four through eight expand on that. This same Lord also reigns in victory. And the psalmist points to a particular instance in the history of Israel without telling us when this was or any of the circumstances. But he's reflecting back and maybe not very far back. Maybe this is fairly recent in memory for, for him and those of his generation. But he offers it now as a particular instance, as a proof in real life, in real time, that what he just said is true about God, that he is this fortress guarding his people. Verse four, he says, for behold, the kings assembled Kings, plural, here to challenge God's people. They came on together. This is a coalition of armies of the enemies of God. As soon as they saw it, the it here would be the city. They were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight, trembling, took hold of them there anguish as of a woman in labor. Well, what did they actually see when they, when they came over the hills and then there was the city of Jerusalem? Now, as a point of fact, historically, it has always been a very difficult city to, uh, to attack. It has uh, steep slopes on three sides within walls around that. One of the sides, the north side, was a little more vulnerable, but that's where they made the walls the strongest. It's very difficult to conquer such a city, which means that the armies that tried to do so ordinarily adopted the strategy of siege. That is, surround the city and just wait till they run out of food. 
And uh, by those means, uh, they, the city of Jerusalem was conquered several different times, uh, including by the, uh, by the Romans in AD 68. That's the year they began their siege. Two years later, they completed their conquering of that city. Now, wait a minute. I just said the city was conquered. Where was the God in his, as a protective fortress? Once again, it's not the physical city that's the point here. He ha, he's gone way beyond that. Uh, this is God who destroys his enemies, protecting his people wherever they are. And even then, there are instances all the time when even God's people are subject to the same kinds of dangers and experience those dangers and loss, even loss of life. We can be quite sure that there are people among God's people that were struck by the tornadoes even just last night. The point is that can only happen when God has designed that as the best plan for accomplishing his purpose. It's not because God's enemies finally got the upper hand. That is what never happens. In that sense, God's people are always secure. What did they actually see then when they approached? Well, nothing that, they, that would be so visually devastating as to cause the enemies, these, these uh, attacking kings, to be astounded and to be in panic and to take to flight, to tremble as a, as a woman in labor. None of those things are the result of just seeing the physical city what they experienced on that occasion was the reality that God is protecting them. We can't get to them. God is keeping them safe. It was the impression that God is actively at work that intimidates God's enemies. And even in instances where we can't see that happen, we have no way of knowing how many times God's enemies, unseen enemies, are trying to attack and destroy God's people, and they must turn away in failure because God is our protective fortress. He destroys his enemies. Uh, that includes the, the statement in verse 7 that actually doesn't quite fit the circumstance the psalmist has been describing. Uh, he hasn't been describing an attack by ships because the city of Jerusalem is quite a few miles inland from the Mediterranean. He seems to be referring here to uh, another instance and not even an instance of attack but an instance when God shows how powerful he is, uh, this almost seems like uh, it's become a proverbial instance of God's power. He says, by the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. Ships of Tarshish, they were well known as 
as strong, sturdy ships built for long distances on the Mediterranean. Uh, ships that were are basically merchant ships and were supposed to be able to withstand the, the weather uh, on the Mediterranean. But there were times where God just shows how powerful he is. Uh, strong ships, not against God's wind. That's all it took was God's wind to destroy them. What can he do against the enemies, the dangers, the perils that you face in your life? Now the psalmist makes an important point, a conclusion. God destroys his enemies, yes, but it's in that process in verse 8 that he preserves his people. As we have heard, so have we seen. There's an equation there that we put these together and we get a, an important conclusion. As we have seen, excuse me, first he says, as we have heard. What have we heard? Well, we've heard everything the Bible has to tell us. And the record of all these things is quite old now. They're historical, they're true, they are valid principles for us, but they're things we've heard that other people have experienced. But now he says what we have heard in the past from others, we've now experienced ourselves. This deliverance from these, uh, this coalition of kings. It's like now in, in, in our lives, we are experiencing the same kinds of things we've always heard about. We knew it was true because the record is true. Now we know it's true because we've experienced it ourselves. And we've all had such experiences. Times when... Under ordinary circumstances, we'd have suffered loss and maybe even have died. But God intervened. You can say, yeah, I've heard it, but I've experienced it too. Both of those together tell us that God preserves his people. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts. Again, among the citizens of that city, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Whoa, he's just gone beyond the physical old city of Jerusalem again. Establish it forever? The city of Jerusalem, it was under Muslim domination for a thousand years until the 20th century. Uh, and the future is looking pretty iffy with all of the uh, unrest and, and, uh, and fighting even over the Temple Mount that is going on. But God, it says here, he's going to establish it forever. Uh, this is definitely going beyond. The old city of Jerusalem, as they call it today, actually represents 
new Jerusalem. Revelation 21 portrays a city in heaven coming down toward earth. A city that God has designed as the residence of his people forever. He really means what he says here. There may even be a correspondence between Christ saying, I go to prepare a place for you. That may be the place. And it's going to be a durable place and not just a place for us. But it says that their God will dwell with his people. That protective presence of God forever. So how can you know that you are a citizen of that kingdom? It's just one way. Trust Christ as your savior. That decision to accept Christ, the New Testament says, transfers us into the kingdom of God's son. You're a citizen of that city. That is where your future home is. But in the meantime, as a citizen, you'll be safe. Trust the Lord as Savior. So far, the psalmist has, it has shown to us the Lord is well able to provide protection. But can you really depend on him in your circumstances? That's where verses 9 through 14 assure us that God, besides being great in that sovereign rule, is also great in his loyal love. We saw this same term show up last week in Psalm 36. We saw it this morning in our opening passage at the beginning of our service. Here it is again. We have thought on your steadfast love, that commitment of God based on the covenant that he's established with us. This covenant relationship means that God is loyal in love, not just in obligation. He's loyal in his love for his people. And he's always been faithful. Verses 9 through 11 tell us this is is who he is. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. We've taken the opportunity, and there's just something about being together with God's people to worship him, enabling us to focus our attention and to think about who God is, to reflect, to ponder, to formulate conclusions based on who God is, that he has always been faithful. What does that mean for us? Besides our, the blessing, the benefit, What does it mean about how we should respond? The psalmist has two suggestions. First of all, his people respond with praise. Again, in verse 9, we thought about your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. And here's what we conclude. 
as your name, O God, his name, all that God is, as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. That is, wherever God's people reside, receiving the benefits of his protective care and his loyal love, how do they respond? They respond in praise because that's what our God deserves. He is worthy. Verse 10 continues to tell us that his people also respond in joy. He says, your right hand is filled with righteousness. That's a very uh, elaborate, poetic way of saying he always does what's right. Whatever happens. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Mount Zion, that's us. Citizens of that city. Let the daughters of Judah, and see here he expands it to outlying residences. The daughters of Judah refers to the surrounding towns, the villages, wherever God's people live. Let them rejoice because of your judgments. His people respond then with joy, even when situations are challenging. Even when the perils that afflict, afflict, uh, afflict all people everywhere, even when they affect God's people, he still always does what is right. His actions are always right. His decisions are always just. He can do no less. And in the midst of it all, his people are always safe. Yes, God has always been faithful. But verses 12 through 14 invite us to draw one more related conclusion. He will always be faithful. It's not, even if the, the, the dangers that lie ahead are, are somehow worse than what they've been in the past, it doesn't matter. He's up to it. He's going to be faithful every day that you live. And so the invitation is to take a stroll around this city. And that was, that was a literal invitation for the people of that generation. Take a walk around. What are you going to see? Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. To this day, there is a rampart walk. You can walk on top of the wall for a good part of the city. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. But once again, these are just representative. They're representative of God, God's power. You see, his people have a promise to claim. Think about God. 
That's, that's our walk around the city. Think about God. Think about what he's promised. Think about how powerful he is in backing up that promise to protect. Think about those things. Consider, lay it to heart. See for yourself again that God's people are fully secure within his care. Claim that promise. The last part of verse 13 and verse 14 tell us that God's people also have a message to share. He says, take this stroll around, draw this conclusion about God that you may tell the next generation. You see, there are others that also need to hear, this is what God is like. This is an opportunity you can have to be secure in a perilous world. That you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. And he adds one more sentence. He will guide us forever. Now, it's very possible that that last sentence says something a little bit more than that. I mean, you can only say the word forever so many times in a row before it really stops communicating something. Well, this one is a little different. In fact, that's another instance where the ESV gives us a footnote at the bottom. It says another reading is, he will guide us beyond death. Well, there's reality there. This is a permanent relationship, and it includes safe passage through death into the next life. What a great God. How he deserves our praise. Jan and I were once flying on a private plane from Denver to Salt Lake City. There were three other passengers with us. Actually, we were with them, uh, along with the two pilots. It was late afternoon. We were enjoying beautiful views of the Rocky Mountains when our pleasant journey was interrupted by a notice from the regional airport at Salt Lake City where we were heading, letting us know that an intense windstorm had blown in and they expected it to continue for hours longer. They were advising us to take some action. Well, the owner of the plane uh, moved to the front to confer with the pilots and reminded them that we all had an important meeting the next morning. We really need to get to Salt Lake City, not some other alternative uh, location. And so the, the pilots agreed. They said, we're going to go for it. They were well-seasoned. Between the two of them, they had over 50 years of experience. And as we began our descent, we began to realize, oh, this warning of high winds was real. It started to get pretty choppy and bouncy, and 
there were times that I could feel myself actually leaving the seat and straining at the seat belts. One of those very severe bumps, I have to admit, I lost my lunch. It was, uh, it was a terrifying experience for all of us. As, uh, as we uh, approached the runway, the owner shouted up at the pilots because it was really loud and noisy at that point. He shouted up and said, if you think it's not worth it, don't take the risk. And the pilots called back, we're going in. So we, we continued down and ultimately with the, the plane going side to side, they brought it safely down to the runway. Now at that point, we're all still tense. I mean, we're still out here in the open. The wind could still do damage. But as we turned toward this terminal, we saw a long line of airport personnel out on the sidewalk, cheering, <laughs> clapping. I'm not sure what they were expecting to see. <laughs> but they were thrilled, and that just broke the tension inside the plane. And what had been terror turned to sheer relief and joy and we began profusely thanking the pilots and praising God, I think with an earnestness that we had never expressed before. Suddenly the realization of God's protective hand was part of our experience. What we had heard, now we saw felt, and the result is praise to God. The point of Psalm 48 is to sense the reality of that protective care. When the rest of the world has plenty to worry about, God's people are safe. That should transform our worship, our commitment to God. Spurgeon, in preaching on this passage, concluded this way. Farewell, fear. Come hither, gratitude and faith, and sing right joyously. Take the safety and express it in praise. Can we all admit our own worship of God falls way short? Way short in intensity, in genuine gratitude. I would urge you, ask the Lord first to forgive your earthly fears you have no basis. Forgive me for being afraid of what's to come. Ask the Lord to help you trust his divine protection and to see instances of its reality in your own life. Then ask him to help you worship him fully 
eagerly with all your heart. Let's bow for prayer as you take the opportunity to do that. Father, we stand in awe of your greatness, your power, your commitment to us, your loyal love, your protective care. Father, we thank you for keeping us secure, even when it feels like the world's attack is too great. Thank you that you are greater. Father, would you forgive us for our anxieties over things that you have in full control? Thank you then for freeing us up to worship you with all of our hearts. We pray that your word through the work of your spirit would change us today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. We are going to sing a stanza of our closing song in just a moment. First, we'll listen to one with heads bowed right where you stand. But there's, there are some quiet places uh, in the hallway right next door here where you can further reflect on God's promise to you and your responsibility to him. In particular, I invite you to make your way to the back while we stand here for these moments. If you'd like to know how you can be sure you are a citizen of that city, hope that you'll come. Trust Christ as your Savior.